welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study of Luke today in the Gospel, uh, now in chapter 23. Uh, I'm going to read you verses 44 all the way through 49 to just give you the, the sweep of the moment, and uh, we're going to spend time in verses 47 to 49 today to complete this portion of the narrative that Luke gives us. So would you hear with me the Word of God? Luke writes, It was now about the sixth hour, that would have been noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is God's word about the holiest moments in human history. May we hear it. Father, come and as I've asked you for so many years in so many places and so many pulpits, I ask you again here, oh, bless the reading and the teaching, the opening and the imparting of your holy word. May the Holy Spirit himself brood over passage and preacher and reveal to us his truth and the Lord Jesus. In the mighty name of our Lord, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, these are uh, hours that as I said, form the holiest time in human history. Most somber event in human history, as you've already captured from me as I've taught it to you over these weeks. The passage that uh, we've been studying, really the, the drama itself, began back in verse 26 as Christ, having been scourged and sentenced by Pilate, now moves through Jerusalem carrying the crossbar of the cross on his bleeding shoulders and Simon of Cyrene is pulled out of the crowd by the, the, cruciar, the cruci, cruciari, the Latin word for the Roman soldiers in the, the detail of crucifixion to carry the crossbar for Jesus. And that began a series of events that had formed three hours up until this point. So really the first section of the scripture from verses 26 all the way through verse 46, which I read to you, Describe the hours leading up to his death. The hours of 
agony on the hill of the skull, as it was called, began when Jesus was silently nailed to the cross and the crossbar raised and dropped onto the standing post and, and his agonies began. And we know that they were punctuated by his first words, which were a prayer to the Father. In fact, it was a repeated prayer. The Greek language tells us over and over again, he pulled himself up for breath on the cross. And each time in the early hours, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in the midst of all of his prayer for them, they mocked him from the the crowds to to the, the leaders around them, to the very soldiers and the thieves on either side. In the midst of this, there's a sea change in one heart, and one of the thieves stops mocking and begins to consider all that's going on in his life and all that Jesus had said about himself. And he calls out and asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom, a moment of powerful faith, and the thief finds eternity. Jesus promises him paradise. And then as as it began in verse 46, things shift at the top of the fourth hour and a sudden darkness comes upon the entire region and maybe the world. The darkness was a symbol of the wrath of God as it fully arrived upon God the Son from God the Father as he poured out his wrath for our sin on his Son. So the wrath fell over those dark three hours, the darkness being a symbol of it. At the end of those three hours, the Bible says that Jesus called out as the darkness began to lift, and he asked the Father, Father, or God, rather, he did not use the term Father since he was under the wrath of God. He said, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the final taste of of, of the experience for Christ was not just the wrath falling, but the Father forsaking him. And when this was all complete, the temple and the The veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom by the hand of God. A mighty earthquake shook the city and shook the hill, and the rocks split all around the soldiers and the people. And here Jesus cries out, it is finished, with a loud voice. And then he says, into thy hands, Father, again, I commit my spirit. And those are the events that we've studied so far. They are events in the hours leading up to his death, incredible events, witnessed by all the people we'll talk about here. But now Luke shifts and he goes from the hours leading up to the death of Christ, filled with incredible events, to the moments right after his death, verses 47 to 49, record just moments of realization and action among several groups of people right after Christ's death. Now Luke, the way he writes, as I mentioned to you, tells the story and and populates his narrative by amplifying the portraits he places there of different people involved in the event. Some of the people that Luke describes are described nowhere else. And so these portraits of people, whether it's Simon of Cyrene pulled out of the crowd to carry the crossbar or the scoffers or the soldiers brought out in, in detail by Luke like no other, the thieves, and, and the thief dying on the cross, only Luke describes his conversions. Now, conversion, now he comes to three other characters, if you will, or gatherings of people. There's the centurion, verse 47. The man placed in charge of the four who crucified Jesus. There are the crowds, verse 48, who had been 
throughout the spectacle, watching all of it. And then there are the friends of Jesus, I call them, verse 49, his acquaintances and the women who had followed him. So three groups, three more portraits, and that's why I've called this miniseries, I guess you could call it, Tales from Calvary, as Luke tells us the Calvary story through the lives that were there. So there are hours filled with incredible events that Luke just finished describing, and now in three verses, he talks about the moments right after his death, and he talks about what it was like to witness the death of Jesus and the impact that it had on those three gatherings of people, the centurion, the crowds, and those that were acquaintances and friends of Christ. And certainly you would not be surprised that witnessing the death of Jesus and all that accompanied it it, over those hours would have created an impact. It could not but have created an impact. Whenever people fully, with their senses and their thoughts, meditate on the sufferings and death of Jesus, chances are, more often than not, it does make an impact. Now, all through history, there have been different artistic ways of describing this. It's the most compelling death in human history. And our 21st century society had an audiovisual experience of it almost 20 years ago now, hard to believe, but in 2004. And that audiovisual experience through a film had an impact on thousands and thousands of people. Maybe you remember it. It was the, the showing of the film, The Passion of the Christ. Maybe some of you saw that in a theater. That's really not possible these days. Younger people will see it in clips or online or what have you. I and many others had the the opportunity to to watch it in a theater. Now, whether you have, I don't know, there's lots of different opinions about that film. It's it's origin with Mel Gibson. Some people called it unduly anti-Semitic. I would disagree with that, but some people did, and our society protested. Others said it was too violent. I found that quite uh, revealing. A society obsessed with violence, blood-soaked in it, found this violence too much to take. I think that's, that's telling. But you can't argue with the fact that the showing and the experience of the Passion of the Christ in theaters in that year caused tens of thousands of people to contemplate the death of Christ. And if you were there, it deeply moved you. When, when the Passion of the Christ came out, I was actually a, a full-time Christian radio talk show host. Some of you may not know different parts of the lives that I've lived. But that's what I was doing in the early 2000s. And uh, I was a talk show host in in Northern California for a a large broadcaster, radio talk show host in Evening Drive. And and, uh, like many broadcasters across America, I was tasked by my network to, to cover this. It was the largest Christian event, news event that year. And we covered the development of the passion of the Christ and the debates about it. And then uh, I was... I was uh, told by my, uh, my, my network to take my show on the road and broadcast live from the lobby of the Metroplex in, in, in downtown Sacramento the, the day the first showings happened of the Passion of the Christ. So uh, I was sent there, and, and I went to the first showing and sat through it, and then I was to meet my engineer, and we were set up the, the remote broadcast system for the show, and I was... To, to broadcast my program live 
on the air from, from the, the lobby of the Metroplex and interview people as they came out of the theater about the impact of the film on them in the moment, as well as interview an expert or two about the facts and the message of the film. And so I went, not really knowing fully what I was going to see or experience. But I went to that showing, and some of you may be able to relate to this as well. Uh, It was one of the most impactful moving, but also just overwhelming experiences I've ever had in a, in a movie setting, maybe the most. I mean, from beginning to end, the passion of the Christ has an intensity to it and a movement to it and a purpose and unsheathed emotion that moves through it. It's hard to describe. I remember, as so many others would who, who viewed it at the time, nearly three hours later, it didn't seem like it, as I recall, the house lights came up. And unlike when other movies end, virtually no one moved. You remember this? Virtually no one moved. Most of us sat in silence, except for the weeping that you would hear from different individuals around you who could not control their response to the story. It was somber. I I would take a glance or two at people around me because I was enveloped in my own emotion. I was speechless. Speechless. And I sensed that those around me were deeply dealing with the reality of what they had seen and the meaning of what they had seen. Maybe you were in a theater. Many have said that they looked around and when they saw people starting to make chit-chat as they left the theater, you almost felt that was a violation of the moment. So I was silent. I was overwhelmed, emotionally spent, but also deeply moved. But I knew that after a few moments of that, I needed to pull that all together, and I needed to head out to the lobby and meet my producer, and we needed to put a show together, and that's what I did. And we broadcast live that night, and I interviewed person after person who had essentially the same impact in their lives. And so all of that to illustrate that, that a, a deep look at the death of Jesus Christ through the Scripture in a scripturally accurate, accurate way deeply moved me and it deeply moved others. I think about that and I realize these were people who were actually there. These were people there in the most somber and significant moment in human history. They were there, they saw it. Some of them may have even been spattered with the blood of it. How much more must they have been moved? It was the Holy Spirit's hour. He brooded over that hour like no other hour. It cannot be repeated. It can't be replicated on a screen. It can simply be memorialized by the words of the Spirit in the Scriptures. And that's what we have. And I hope that in the moments that I have to describe it to you, the impact that God wanted that death to have will be fresh for you under the Holy Spirit's presence. Tales from Calvary. Here are three more. The tale of the centurion, the tale of the crowds, and the tale of the friends of Jesus. Each of them I will describe to you, and then I'm going to 
do my best to describe what I think the impact of the death of Jesus was on each of them individually. It was a different impact for each. And each of those impacts has an implication today for them. And it had an implication for them in the moment that led them to something that God was doing in them. But for us today, it has an implication for what God may be doing in us. So that's where we're headed. The tales, each with an impact and an implication. There are three. Let's look, first of all, at perhaps the the most well-known of the three, the tale of the centurion, verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Or as Mark and Matthew record, he also said, certainly, truly, this was the Son of God. A couple questions might come to your mind. Who was he? And what was a centurion? You might have some of your Bible movie images of a centurion. You know what they look like. But really, who were they and what did they do? Well, uh, the Roman army worldwide was made up of legions, the Roman legions you're familiar with from history. Each of those approximately, well, 6,000 soldiers made up each of those legions. And they split them up into 10 groups called cohorts. And that was the second level, I believe, of military authority. So there were 600 cohorts. And as I understand it, Pontius Pilate, being the procurator of Judea, I believe he had a cohort assigned to him. And they uh, headquartered wherever he went. And in Jerusalem during Passover, the 600 members of his cohort were headquartered in in a place called the Fortress of Antonia, which was on the upper corner of the temple area. It's been excavated today, I believe. And so there was a Roman century, if you will, the cohorts of, of Uh, of 600 were broken down into six centuries. A century was a group of 100 Roman soldiers. And so you've got centurion, meaning the commander of 100. And so there were six centuries under Pilate's command, and there were six centurions, as, as I understand it, that would have been in that grouping of soldiers. And so this was one of those, this centurion. He was, as I can understand it, a mid-level officer, but he was an officer on the ground. He wasn't at the level of, of commanding from a desk, so to speak. He was an officer on the ground in charge of a, of a unit like that. You find them often in the New Testament. Uh, they're, they're, they're seen in a number of New Testament uh, encounters, some of them coming to faith. A centurion, in a way, was kind of the thinking point of Rome's spear. They were usually somewhat educated and, and uh, above-level people, but they were still the point of the spear, the thinking point of Rome's spear. He was smart but secular. And yet here, we find him moving into a moment of worship. He praises God here, a God whom, before Christ was elevated on that cross, this centurion would not have known the God of the Bible, the Father. So that's who he was. So what could have taken him from his secular place, his detached engagement with all of this, to a point of praise? What could have happened? Well, the Bible gives us one clue. It says, verse 47, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. 
So there's a connection here, at least the way I read it. Something had occurred in the hours of those events that I described to you leading up to the death of Jesus so that at the moment after the death of Jesus, something occurred in the man. Well, what had he seen? What, what is contained in this word here or this phrase when he saw what had taken place, what had taken place? Well, here we, we, we know it was, it was what surrounded the death on the cross by Jesus, but it also must surround what took place in the hours of the passion. Now, Gibson built his movie around the last 12 hours of the physical life of Christ, known as the passion hours of the Christ. And he, in his narrative, went from the, the battle in Gethsemane with the devil all the way through the, the resurrection, but the passion point ended at the death of Jesus. Now, the centurion, many think, was present for most of that. He wasn't just there when the cross arrived on the hill. He was a centurion. There was a, called a quaternion of cruciari in the Latin words. There were four men, soldiers, everyday soldiers, who were trained and assigned to crucify. They knew how to do it from beginning to end. But the centurion was there to oversee this crucifixion. And some scholars believe it was because of the importance around Jesus and the possibilities of unrest around Jesus. But some scholars believe that this centurion was there from the beginning of the hours of the Passion. That means he was there from the moment of the arrest of Jesus in the garden. We know that soldiers were assigned there to be surrounding the garden in case of trouble when Jesus was betrayed by Judas and arrested. So if we go with this, this thinking of some of these scholars, if he was there from the beginning, this is what he saw. This is what the Bible means when it says, when all that he had seen impacted him. He would have seen the arrest in the garden. He would have been maybe on the outer perimeter of it, but he would have seen the betrayal. He would have seen the miraculous healing of a slave's ear and the willingness of Jesus to come and be arrested. And then he would have gone with those that had, 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 had taken him. He would have been on the outskirts and maybe inside the room to the various Faux Jewish trials, the, the trumped-up trials of Jesus through the early hours of the morning in Caiaphas's house. He would have seen and heard all of that, perhaps standing against the wall with a security detail. And then he and his men would have moved Jesus, having been, been tried by the Jews and condemned, moved him the short distance to Pilate's praetorium. Familiar to this centurion, that's where he reported for duty. And the centurion with his detachment would have taken Jesus there. And it's probable that the centurion was there for every moment of the trials of Jesus before Pilate. He might have seen and listened to the crowds as they gathered. He might have watched the angry eyes of the rulers as they stirred the crowd up and moved around them and urged them on to condemn Jesus. He might have watched the inner conflict of Pilate over the fact that he knew that Jesus was innocent. He might have been there in the, in the, silent, in the interviews that Jesus was, uh, was given by Pilate, and most of the time Jesus being silent, only speaking a few words to Pilate. Maybe he was even close enough to, to the throne of Pilate for that moment when Claudia, Pilate's wife, came into the room, grabbed Pilate by the arm, and said, have nothing to do with this righteous man, Jesus, for I had a frightful dream about him this night. 
Maybe this centurion was close enough to see and hear all of that and to watch Pilate go back and forth to the porch multiple times, almost a half a dozen times if you count them all, of declaring in one way or another, Jesus is innocent. And then the centurion must have taken his his team and supervised the horrible scourging of Jesus, the ripping of the flesh off his back with the whip, done by Pilate to maybe satisfy the crowd. Watch Jesus brought out again and Pilate in one last attempt saying, isn't this enough? And the, Pilate, the crowd's crying out, crucify him. We will not have this man reign over us. Let his blood be upon us. Certainly it was a trial like the centurion had never seen. Declared innocent multiple times by Pilate. Then when the sentence was finally given to the crowd, the crowd won by mob rule. Maybe he watched Pilate take the basin out and wash his hands on the porch, saying that he was innocent of the blood of Christ. And then he received one of the worst commandments in his career, this centurion, take him and crucify him. And at that point, the centurion might have just moved on with it as the business of the empire taking this man silent in meekness, making sure the crossbar was placed upon his shoulders and leading him out through the streets of Jerusalem to the mocking of the crowds. The centurion ahead of the detail and a four-man stance surrounding Jesus and the crossbar. Maybe it was the centurion who was aggravated with how long this was taking, how much Jesus was stumbling, who wanted this to move further and who looked out into the crowd and saw Simon of Cyrene and pointed to one of his men and said, that one, make him carry the cross. And his soldier put the blade of his spear on the shoulder of Simon of Cyrene. Maybe all of that was at the orders of the centurion. The centurion led the way to the top of Skull Hill. And the centurion was there when his men nailed the thieves to the crosses with their usual struggle against the nails and their their agonies and their, their screams of contempt against the Romans. But when they came to Jesus, the centurion might have been struck by the silence and the meekness of Christ, letting his wrists be nailed without resistance as Jesus gave himself for sinners. Maybe he was struck with what Isaiah already knew was coming. Isaiah, who had prophesied, oh, he will be like a lamb that is silent. So the centurion might have seen all of this, and then the cross raised, and the scoffing beginning from the crowds and the rulers, and the the thieves on either side, and finally the centurion and the soldiers themselves gave in for a little sport, and they scoffed this king of the Jews in the middle of the crosses on the hill. But as the hours moved the centurion began to see something he'd never seen, someone forgiving his crucifiers. And he was hearing that prayer of Jesus over and over again, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, over and over again. And this was rolling over his mind and maybe his soul. He saw John, a disciple, bring a weeping woman close to the foot of that cross, the mother of Jesus, 
and saw Jesus in his agonies, think of her and her only and make sure she was cared for. And then she's led away in paroxysms of sorrow. And then he watches a thief completely change his heart and call out to be remembered. And this king promising him paradise. Maybe he saw all of that. And as his mind was beginning to roll all this around and he's in in a place of awe and struggle to understand, then something more happens that shakes him physically because suddenly darkness falls. Not a shadow, not a cloud. Thick darkness falls on the mountain, on him on his men, upon the crowds. And that darkness falls as Luke records it and it stays in thick silence for three long hours and the Bible records that no one spoke as the wrath of God was poured. Sudden darkness and maybe for this man silent fear of what was happening. Here he hears finally the words as the darkness begins to lift. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he wonders how a man could talk through that. And then it is finished with great strength in the voice, which surprised the centurion because nobody died in a loud voice through crucifixion. In your last hours, you were suffocating so severely you could not form a word. But here the God-man draws himself up, cries out, it is finished, and then with an equally loud voice commits his spirit, takes control of his own death and gives his spirit into the hand of the Father. And at that moment, an earthquake comes and shakes the mountain and splits the rocks in his own sight. And unbeknownst to him, In the temple downtown, the veil is torn from top to bottom. All of that transpired. All of that is wrapped up in the phrase, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, that's what he saw. Many believe. Well, what did it do to him? Well, it had an impact. What was the impact For the centurion, one simple word, in my opinion, awe. The impact was awe. He praised God. He understood he was in the presence of a work of God. He praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. He exclaimed it. Now, if you go to Matthew's version, we see that he said something else as well in Matthew 27. After all these events, the earthquake and everything else is described, verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, this is Matthew 27, 54, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, and there's the word, and said, truly, this was the Son of God. The impact was awe. 
And it was awe experienced not just by the centurion, Matthew tells us, it was the entire detachment of soldiers at the foot of that cross. In that moment, it says they all, they were filled with awe and said, and the Greek is plural, they all said to one another, truly this was the Son of God. The realization moved in upon them about the nature of who he was in some supernatural way as the spirit began to work. We don't know all the the intricacies in the human mind and soul about it, but mockers became worshipers is the bottom line. Awe took them over. Now back to our text, it says the centurion praised God. The Greek word is the word from which we get doxology. See, he was giving God glory in this sense in some way. And he said Jesus was innocent, and that's the Greek word translated righteous. Not just innocent of these charges, but there was something about the man. He was righteous in who he was. Righteous. So these words get right who Jesus was. He was the son of God, and he was the perfect man. Now, if you understand things and realize that that those are the essentials that you need to know about who Jesus is to be saved. One commentator said, Luke here records that a mocker is turned into a praiser. A pagan testifies to two profound theological truths that all the religious leaders around the cross couldn't see or refuse to acknowledge. One, that Jesus was innocent. And two, that truly this was the Son of God. Innocent as in righteous. Dikaios is the Greek. Now Peter used that same word in his summary of the crucifixion in 1 Peter 3.18, writing, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, dikaios, for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, commentators are split as to how much this impacted this centurion. But when you understand the righteousness of Christ, obviously packed into this encounter with this awe was a sense of the unrighteousness of what he had done to him. And commentators are split. Some believe that this is the, what we see here is the essence of a conversion. It's a moment when the soldiers, not just the centurion, but Matthew says all of them, the soldiers saw the truth about Jesus and the truth of their sin in terms of what they had done to him, and they were the first converts after the death of Jesus. Remember, this is the moments after he gives his spirit to the Father. So this is right after the physical passing. And they, some commentators believe these were the first converts in fulfillment to the Father's, Christ's prayer. Now, others say that we we can't be sure. I tend to agree with Norman Crawford. He's more cautious about it. And he said, we must await the day when the saved will all be joined in the Father's house to know with certainty if this man was saved and those with him. But it may, may well be that he saw in Christ his Savior God. But it's interesting to observe that the thief who was certainly given paradise, was a Jew, and the centurion was a Gentile, two totally opposite members of the human family. And here, God gives us an example of the blessing of salvation reaching out 
to all people from the cross. I think that's a great comment. Whether they were saved or not, after seeing that, they were certainly deeply touched. Well, no in heaven. So that's the impact of the moment of the death of Jesus on the first one in the tale of the centurion. What's the implication? Well, I think the implication here is the joy of salvation. What he saw and what he realized about Jesus opened the door of salvation for him. I think he probably stepped into it then or later. And so let me ask you, if you have really never dealt with the death of Jesus, here you've seen it again. Here you have the Holy Spirit's words you have over the last few weeks describing it to you. Have you ever dealt with the death of Jesus? Have you ever let it move over you the way it moved over the centurion? Have you ever let the awe of who he was and what he did and what we did in our sin to dawn on you? You've got to deal, deal with that, and when you do, then you can step into salvation. If you don't, then you won't. Meeting Jesus Christ is not just like meeting a supernatural personality. That's what many people think it is. Someone who died but is still risen from the past, who's a present personality, he's an entity who can alter my life or make it better or be a source of wisdom or maybe be an emotional connection for me to the infinite. He's none of that. He's the one who came to the cross and died for you. And you must deal with him in his death. When you do, you will call out to him and be saved. So that's the first tale or text. He shifts his view from the foot of the cross and he, he goes out to the, the hillside around the cross and he goes to the second group and we go now to the tale of the crowds. Verse 48, and all the crowds. Interesting, he has to use the phrasing all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle. In other words, there were a lot of people up there that's interesting because crucifixions were common in Israel. There had been up to 30,000, according to one historian's estimate, in, in the years that Rome had occupied Jerusalem alone up to that point. So it was a common sight. In fact, if you lived in Jerusalem, you could wander out to one of the gates on that side of the city and peek out or look out from your window, or, and you could probably see more often than not, as on Skull Hill, pretty much any day. So crucifixions were common, but this one wasn't. This involved the most compelling personality who'd ever entered Jerusalem. And so the crowds surrounded it, and it's possible that the language that Luke uses here reflects thousands of people on that hill. Thousands. They'd been there for six hours. So let's trace the trajectory, though, because they'd been there not just for the six hours on Calvary, they'd been there not just for the trials at Pilate's courtyard, but they'd been there all week because this was Passover week. And tens and tens and tens of thousands had moved into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and they had come there at least a week before. And we remember them because on Monday of that week, I believe that's when the Palm Sunday events that we celebrate actually happened. It was the first day of, of the week as we count them. Oh, they were, 
They were exhilarated at that point. And you know the story. I mean, it's, it's not unfamiliar to Bible teachers to look at this crowd and say that they, they went through a tremendous amount of change in a short amount of time. When Jesus was coming into the city, the stories about Jesus the, the, had, had moved through their lives, and many of them were convinced he was going to be the earthly Messiah of Israel. He just raised Lazarus from the dead a short time before, and many of them had gone out of town and looked at and touched a risen Lazarus the biggest miracle Jesus ever did. And so the buzz was in the city and they came out by the thousands and welcomed him in as he rode in on, a, on the back of a donkey and they were calling out to him, Hosanna to the son of David. But in those days they were mistaken. They had misread the prophets and been mistaught the prophets by their leaders. That Messiah who will come with a crown someday and restore Israel had to come for a cross first. They didn't read the totality of Isaiah. They didn't let the great story of Christ's sacrifice move into their thinking. So they were excited on Monday, exhilarated, but they were also mistaken. And as Jesus, through the week, through Tuesday, through Thursday, began to do anything but what they had expected, and in fact, simply taught more deeply about the sin of their leaders and the sin of their hearts, and predicted again his cross work, they became disillusioned. And then they became somewhat angry that their hopes were not going to be fulfilled. And then the leaders moved in and surrounded their discontent with lies because they needed the mob with them. And by Friday morning, they'd been manipulated. Mistaken on Monday... By early Friday morning, in their anger, they let themselves be manipulated by the Pharisees and the scribes to join their voices outside Pilate's court and say, crucify him. We will not have this man reign over us. And so they moved into deception. And then they moved, and the Bible tells us, and we've already studied it, that they followed the cross of Christ all the way through the streets to the hillside, and they stayed there. Fascinating. They stayed there until it was done. And when they stayed, they also saw everything the centurion saw and more. They were there to see how meekly Jesus took the nails. They were there to hear the prayers of forgiveness that were prayed over them as well as the soldiers. And they were there to watch him tenderly reach out through John to his mother and care for her. They were there to taste some of the majesty of the hours in which Christ took their abuse and did nothing in return but pray for them to be forgiven. And they were there when the darkness fell. And they were there when they heard Jesus call out, it is finished, and give up his spirit. And they were there when the earthquake split the hill. And I'm convinced that these people who were mistaken on Monday and, mo and, and, and manipulated early that morning suddenly moved into a place where they were, I gave the word away, they were moved. Something occurred to them, something happened in them, and all the crowds that assembled, had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, everything I just described to you, returned home, didn't want to stay on the hillside a minute more. Something had changed. We're going to mill around saying, well, glad that's what done, was done. He got what he deserved, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. No. 
they were suddenly compelled to move away. The Greek says that they, in the imperfect tense, made their way away in groups and in lines. They, di- they just melted away into the city. And as they went, the Bible says here, they were beating their breasts. Over, not just one or two. They, by the thousands, going away to their homes suddenly and quickly. What, what is the beating of the breasts an image of? Well, it might be familiar to you because earlier in Luke 18 we studied two men coming up to the temple. One a proud a scribe, a Pharisee, saying, in my righteousness I come to you, God. I hope you're pleased and proud of me. And then off to the side. Remember that? There was a tax collector, a man guilty of great sin against his people and against God. And he, he was unwilling to even lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now that's the same gesture. And I believe what was going on was a sense over fear of what they had just done. So what's the impact in my teaching outline here upon the crowds? Well, it was simply the word fear. We can't go any farther than that. Some people would call it regret. I think that they began to to get a sense of the enormity of what they had done. In my mind, as each person kind of walked down a trail to their house or headed to the temple because it was Passover day and they were going to get their lamb sacrificed, on the way, in their mind, they might have been thinking, what did we That's as far as we can go. But there's an implication. And many commentators have looked at this and made a connection with something that happened 50 days later. This is the mercy of God. Jesus had prayed over these people, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Perhaps in the end of the hours, in verse 48, they began to understand something of what they had done. And the sense of conviction and fear began to move in them. And 50 days later, Jesus long risen and ascended. The Holy Spirit came. You remember this? In Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit began to lead Peter to preach. And there were doubtlessly some of the thousands who had been on Calvary's hill, they were there. It's impossible to believe they weren't. And as they listened, Peter zeroed in on Calvary. And in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, he said, let all the house of Israel, this is Peter preaching to them, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom... You crucified. He brings them face to face with the reality of what they did. They called out, crucify him. They followed him all the way through the streets. 
They stayed up onto the hillside until the deed was done, thinking that it was deserved. And then all of a sudden, they were struck with the question, what did we do? And in those 50 days, perhaps the Spirit of God had been working in his way that he does with a soul of realizing their sin, seeing their sin. And now Peter says, let me show you your Savior. And in verse 37, the work of the Spirit was done. Because now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, it's as if they were going up to them in in, in groups, grasping their hands, the apostles standing in front where Peter had preached, and they were grabbing their hands saying to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. That's what the Spirit had been leading them to for 50 days. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, like that centurion at the foot of the cross. What Jesus did now opened the portals of heaven. The veil was torn. Now you can come. And you don't have to come with a perfect life or the perfect law. You come with with a broken heart for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation of which you were a part. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Maybe that's where the tale of the crowds found its good ending. The impact upon them on that hillside was fear. That's the word I would use to describe it. But the implication was it led them to the joy of repentance. (laughs) That's how I read it. You might differ. But that's, if I understand the work of God and the life of a soul, sometimes the people that I meet that are running to Christ, they're running because they've fallen into the deepest sin of their life, and God in his goodness has revealed the ugliness of it to them. And they're so struck by it that their deepest sin drives them to seek Christ. Isn't that true? And sometimes it takes weeks or months or even years, but it won't let go of them until they find Jesus. I've seen that so many times. It happened in my own life in a way. I think it happened here. So what about you? Have you not dealt with Jesus in the way that you need to? Maybe you're hearing me, but you know you don't know him as Savior yet. But you've mistreated him. You've mocked him like I did. You've attacked his followers like I did. You've had contempt for him. Do you have regret over how you've treated Jesus like the people on the hillside? What did we do to him? Well, Let it lead you from the hillside to him. Let God do that work.
and it's becoming empty. If you go back to our passage, Luke shifts his gaze even farther from the cross to the ground surrounding it where the crowds were out to the distance in verse 49. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, at a distance, watching these things. What a master Luke was. From the cross to the crowds to the distance. A tableau. And we, he brings us to the final tale, the tale of Christ's friends. Again, you would ask the same questions you might have asked earlier. Who were these The Bible calls them acquaintances, and we cannot know for sure who was in that group, but there seemed to have been some followers of Jesus who had greater courage than all but one of the disciples. And they they came to the scene of the crucifixion, but it seems, as Isaiah may have hinted in his prophecies, that they were at a distance from him. They were afraid but also wrapped up in shock and sorrow. The only one that we can know for sure was among them was John the Apostle, who had braved the danger and who had been close to the cross at one point. We know that because in the Gospels, John brought Mary close enough to the cross for Christ to say to her, Woman, behold John. He'll be your son from now on. And John, behold Mary. She'll be your mother. Take care of her tenderest moment of, the, of, of Calvary. And then we just see that the horror of what continued to take place as Mary's son suffered and maybe the darkness when it fell were so much that the horror plus the grief pressed them back and John took Mary back to a distance. And there were, they were joined by the women Verse 49, who had followed him from Galilee. Who were they? Well, John tells us in John chapter 19 with one simple statement. And he knew them all. He'd grown up with most of them. So John in his gospel identifies them. Standing at the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So those women must have been the women that Luke refers to. John knew them personally. And so they were there. Interesting, Luke says that they were the women who had followed him from Galilee. Uh, Their verb follow was akolotheo, and it meant to walk the same road. Don't you love people who almost from the very beginning sensed their sin and saw in him a savior? These wonderful women, these faithful, loyal, godly women, they walked the same road with Jesus from Galilee, and they'd walked the final road up to Calvary. And they were there. Hmm. What was the impact upon them? Well, hard to say in, in a full sentence, but to me, as I looked at it, and if I were where they were, 
The word grief is the way I would summarize it. It was probably a collision of many things, shock, sorrow, but grief seems to capture it all. You see, they'd hoped in certain ways that he was Messiah. They'd come to believe he was the Son of God, and, and yet they believed his end would be an end of victory, not crucifixion. The Bible tells us that even then they didn't understand the full nature of why Jesus had to die. That was only revealed as the Spirit put it all together after Resurrection Day for most of them. And, and so they'd hoped in Christ as Messiah and as the great Son of God, and now they'd lost him. And the shock and the sorrow must have overwhelmed them, and they were simply completely covered in grief. But we know <laughs> that uh, with Jesus, they would soon be changed and find hope again, and that's the implication. The impact upon them was grief, and you can understand it, human grief, but the implication was that what would happen three days later would lead them into the joy of hope. They wouldn't grieve very long. You know, when I watched the movie The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, I I appreciated a lot of it, and I've told you how I was impacted by it, but one of the things that I felt was a weakness was that if it was possible, there was so much focus on the physical suffering of Jesus, but not enough on the rising of Jesus. Maybe you remember that about the movie. It was just a portion at the end that was too fast and too limited in storytelling. Too much of a focus on the suffering, maybe due to his religious background, the producer, but not enough on the rising, and that's the way it is today. You know, a lot of people can be fascinated by the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and the agonies of the death of Jesus, but never come to know Jesus. You might be fascinated or filled with pity over the suffering of Jesus, but if that's all you think he did was suffer, that'll fill you with pity. But unless you understand that three days later he rose victorious and the suffering had a purpose that was complete and the true identity of Jesus is as the risen and coming king, you don't know Jesus because there's no risen Jesus for you to know. You can focus on his suffering and that'll fill you with pity, but if you you understand his resurrection, that'll fill you with life. Don't miss that. You see, the cross wasn't the last word about Jesus. The empty tomb is. That's what he always said. I'll suffer. I'll be betrayed. I'll be tortured. I'll die. And I will, three days later, rise again. And he did. Don't you miss the fullness of what Jesus did. He died and he rose. And we know that that's the last part of the story that the women entered into. I mean, yes, the women were present at his death there in sadness that day, but they were also present at his burial. We'll study that next week in, in, in the later parts of, of Luke's chapter here. So they stayed through their grief and they moved through it in whatever hope and and, and commitment to Jesus they had, present at his burial, seeing the tomb, and then at his resurrection, were they not? The very first. They were eyewitnesses to everything. 
And later the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1 that they would join the group of believers who had seen the risen Jesus and were praying, at Pente- praying in the upper room, praying in the promise of the Holy Spirit, and they would experience the Holy Spirit, and they would be in the crowds as Peter preached, and then they would begin speaking to their friends as messengers of Christ, and they would host churches and gatherings in their homes as leaders for Christ, and their time for proclamation would come, and they'd go from grief to hope that would never die. What's the implication, the joy of hope? And so what about you? Maybe You've walked the road with Jesus. Maybe you are a Christian. But like these women, God has led you into an experience of tragedy. They were watching the worst possible thing imaginable happen to someone that they loved more than any words could explain. They didn't understand that God was in it, but in the midst of the suffering, they couldn't understand it. Maybe you've loved someone and God in his sovereign will has led them into a tragedy that is beyond your words and it has stopped you in your faith walk because you're confused about God and you've lost your confidence in him because of what difficulty he's allowed in someone that you love. Maybe you're enveloped with the impact of grief. And I would simply tell you, hold on. Don't stop walking the road. God has a plan. He had a plan that dark day. He has a plan for you. He has a plan for the difficulty that is allowed into the life of that person you love. Don't you let that grief overcome you. You hold on and you ask him for a new day because, dear beloved, God is never done. He's just not. And what he does is good. You hold on. The joy of hope can still be yours. Hmm. Well, it's quite a story, isn't it? Of contrasting people and reactions, right? And, and, and Luke was known for that by those that have studied his style. And he loved to, to draw the human picture, but he also liked to show contrasts. And you see contrasts throughout this encounter of people and their responses. It's been called the great reversal that Luke loved to include in his writings, the great reversal. For example, here in the last hours, in the great reversal, the chief priests and the teachers of the law that ran the false trials and rammed it through Pilate and and chased the cross to the top of the hill and mocked Jesus all the way to to death, they, they should have known everything about who he was and what he was doing. But they rejected his God's son, and as a result, they they went to judgment. Those who were first, Luke shows, are again shown to be the last. But on the other side, the last, the, the helpless, the rejected, the people without hope, or the deepest and darkest of sinners, if you want to go there, were that way in this same story, they turned to Jesus. They don't find judgment. They find welcome. They find life everlasting. So the last become first in Luke's story. And it's God's story. In this account, I just love it at the end. He he writes in the thief on the cross to show that God is able to save to the uttermost. There is nobody you know, including you, 
who's too full of sin not to be cured by my Savior. There just isn't anyone. He saves the most lost, if you want to coin a phrase, from criminals on a cross to centurions who nailed it. That's him. I guess you could say that there are, as one type of person who's really beyond the forgiveness that we talked about here, and it's really those who thought they didn't need it. Those who thought they didn't need forgiveness, no, they didn't get it. But those who thought they didn't deserve it got it all and more than they ever imagined. So which are you today? How does the story of the cross impact you today? Will you come? However you need to come, to Christ as Savior or as your Lord to restore your heart, you come.